Blog Talk Radio. listening and being part of the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. I'm here in the studio in Jacksonville, Florida with Emery Martinelli, our radio technician. Hello, Emery. How are you? Hi, everyone. Okay. Boy, he's a genius at things, and uh, if anything goes wrong, I'll hold him responsible. But thank you for listening today for our 75th broadcast of From the Eastern Files. The program is dedicated to memories, stories, and articles appearing in the Eastern publications, such as Repartee, the official magazine of the retired Eastern Pilots Association, and books by former Eastern employees. We want to keep the great history of Eastern Airlines for all to share and keep the legacy of this proud airline alive and well into the future. Today's From the Eastern Files brings you the early history of our great airline and the aircraft it flew. Readings for this series come from early years newsletters uh, distributed by Eastern Air Transport known as Newswings. Great stories there. Uh, and hidden memories and treasures of Eastern Airlines. We also have a special tribute to an American aviation hero that will be open for discussion, and we'll do that at the end of our show. Now, let's listen to another of those great Eastern commercials. take you back to February of 1934. The title of the article that was written in the Newswing by S.J. Henry Jr. is called Invisible Highways. Of course, we're talking about airways now. But uh, let's look back to 1934 when he wrote. Let's look in a uh, moment uh, on the airline pilot at work and see how he goes about this strange business of beating the weather. We're winging our way over eastern Pennsylvania, the Delaware River on our left, and at this time of year, fog and low ceilings are common in this region. Through the heavy ground haze, we can dimly see many historic landmarks as we fly over Philadelphia. As the city recedes in the murk, our pilots decide to go higher to take advantage of more favorable winds. 
1,200 feet, we enter the first cloud layer. Soon, we are merged in the sea of mist, the soft gray light revealing the engine's nacelles, the vague outline of wingtips, nothing more. Our view cut off by fog above and below, we turn our attention forward. You've probably wondered about all those instruments in the cockpit of your transport plane. They may be divided into two general classes, engine and airplane performance indicators. There is an instrument for every possible purpose. They tell the pilot everything he must know about the conditions of his plane. Engine instruments are required and quite necessary, but they play a comparatively small part in blind flight. Here, airplane performance indicators do the real job. Look at the altimeter. It registers 3,500 feet, and we're still climbing. Now we're right in the clouds, and perhaps the pilots will take us on top, that is, on top of the clouds, for the most glorious sight ever imagined. We note the artificial horizon on the instrument board, the little figure of an airplane seeming to float in its blue globe-shaped dial hovers slightly above the horizontal center line. That line represents the actual horizon as it would be seen in straight and level flight. The position of the tiny model corresponds exactly to the plane's attitude of flight, and thus the pilot knows, even in fog, whether he is flying up or down, turning left or right. There comes a momentary break in the clouds slipping by in the haze. We check the airspeed indicator. It shows we're going 120 miles an hour. Hard to believe when we seem to be floating motionless on the mist, but true. We've leveled off on the airway and high above the dripping earth, unseen, scarcely heard, Unable to see anything beyond our cabin, we are winging a swift, sure course to our destination, 100 miles away. The men in the cockpit sit quietly, attentive only to instruments which reveal to their practice eye the whole story of flight. Any attempt to describe blind blind flying uh, in the cold, hard light of analysis must be approached with due respect, not only to the readers hereof, but for the real pioneers who developed the art. To many who understand the theory and realize the physical difficulties, its practice is still a mystery akin to magic. To many experienced air passengers, flight through and above clouds is merely a delightful method of travel. That is what the airlines intend it should be. But little thought is given to the skill required, the long practice which every good pilot must have, or to the many scientific aids provided for overcoming the menace of bad weather. Instrument flying, to give it a more accurate name, is a comparatively new achievement in aviation but it serves to prove and yet disprove one conception much older than flight. Man has been called the perfect machine. That is obviously an exaggeration, of course. Man is only the most versatile machine. When it comes to perfection, he must know how in the real machines of iron and steel which he has created. And strangest fact of all, although man can fairly trust in the reliability of his machine, he cannot trust his own senses that have served to build them. Modern aircraft instruments offer an excellent and original feel in the old dispute of man versus the machine. Pilots who know their planes for better than you know your car, will tell you that when flying blind, man-made instruments are superior 
to man. Having had ample opportunity to test their own judgment against the evidence offered by good instruments in good condition, they count very little on their own sensations. Take the gadget's advice in a pinch, they say. It dictates, it dictates are rarely wrong. Instruments register facts, and airlines prefer, prefer facts to fancy. This quality of exact science of instrument precision rather than human snap judgment is building for the nation's airlines an operation record second to none. Blind flying has become common practice. Every airline pilot is now required to pass a rigid flight test. And he must fly a total of 25 hours a year in a hooded cockpit, providing his ability to navigate proving his ability to navigate by instruments alone. He must know the art of riding the beam, as pilots term the unerring charting of a course along the path of the radio beacons. These are the magnets that draw planes through thickest weather in safe landings at distant airports. They provide the one indispensable factor in modern blind flight. Radio directional beacons are spaced every 200 miles along the airways. Fifty-five of them send out their signals day and night, beaming invisible or forming invisible highways in the sky. Their average useful range is 100 miles, so that transport planes are never out of touch with one. Apart from the role they play as the greatest of navigational aids, these aerial sentinels present an interesting study in radio engineering. Unlike the visible beacons, which revolve to send their light in all directions, radio beacons transmit their guiding signals along a definite course by means of extreme shortwave transmissions, which prevents them from being broadcast to every compass point. These signals from a straight, narrow path, they form a straight, narrow path down which the pilot may steer his plane to his airport. If there are four airways remaining from the, beaming from the beacon site, four sets of signals may be transmitted, spreading out like the spokes of a giant wheel. There may be sent in, these may be sent in any direction desired. Actually, two signals are sent out along with each course. The Morse code letter A is dot dash. It is directed slightly to the left of the center line, which marks the course as we approach the beacon. The region where this signal is heard is called the A sector. To the right, the signal is the Morse code N dash dot and known as the N sector. When flying exactly between the two, the pilot hears a long sustained dash or the Morse letter T caused by the merging together of the two signals. When the A or the N predominates in his earphones, the pilot knows he is to one side or the other of his proper course and immediately corrects his direction. The Morse T, code T, that marks the path the plane must fly is the own course signal so that he may know to just which beam he is flying to fly. These signals are interpreted periodically every few seconds where when the station characteristic or call letters 
also in Morse code, is flashed to the other. At longer intervals, complete airway weather reports for his radio, his route, are broadcast so that he may know it just what conditions lie ahead, especially at the airport he is seeking. All this the pilot hears through his radio receiver as he flies blind high above the earth. To interpret and coordinate these different signals and at the same time to keep the plane flying straight and on even keel when there is no horizon visible by which to orient his position, here is a test every transport pilot must, must meet. Skill in riding the beam, as it's called, however, is only half the requirements. When he arrives over the airport, the beacon signals suddenly die out altogether. This phenomenon, peculiar to every radio beacon, is known as the zone of silence, or as most often referred to as a cone of silence. All the pilot has to do now is to land the aircraft, but only one of them will tell you that that is plenty. He must maneuver his plane into position, start his long slide into the wind, his long glide into the wind, and set the ship down on the proper runway. Even though fog may extend far beyond or far below him to within a hundred feet of the ground, With the help of his radio, science has made it possible to land safely without seeing the ground until the wheels of the plane are rolling to a stop. Now, marker beacons, which send out sharp, short-range vertical signals from the boundary or at a definite distance from the field, help to localize the airport for the pilot. Thus, he knows just how far he is from the runway as he glides in for the landing. In addition, at the Newark Airport, the Department of Commerce has successfully worked out the first curved beam. This in itself represents almost as great an aid to blind flight as the first radio beacon. It is not really a curved beam, but rather a signal emanating at an angle to the runway, that angle marking the normal glide path of the plane. Whereas the directional beacon proper and the marker beacons are received audibly as a rule, this signal requires a visual receiver. This is best described as a clock, the hands of which are loose in the dial. Vertical and horizontal lines are set in the face of the, to form a cross. The pilot's problem is to make the two floating hands conform exactly to the position of the cross. When he has done so, the vertical hand indicates to him that his plane is in line with the runway, heading for a smooth landing. The horizontal needle, when flush with the crossbar, shows the plane to be flying in at exactly the right angle to reach the head of the runway. If this needle is above the horizontal, the plane will come in too high above the field or overshoot the runway. If the hand is below the line, it will undershoot and not reach the field. He must listen for his marker beacons, watch the two wavery needle points, On the dial, correcting for every variation, keep his airplane on an even keel and his engines tuned and ready for a final burst that will level him off for a perfect three-point landing. Blind landings are still the exception rather than the rule, but with the increasing demands of trade, pilots see the day not far, not far off, when they will be asked to take off in bad weather, fly through it, and land on airports they cannot see. Zero ceiling, zero visibility will present no more of a 
threat than a passing summer shower. Mark Twain said once, everybody talks about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. Likewise, for many years, aviation has been bedeviled by the assertion of its opponents. You can't beat the weather. Now, however, airline pilots are proving that bad weather can be beaten. They are doing it. The roar of engines is supplemented by another lesser sound, the low, persistent, persistent whine of the on-course signal, symbolizing to the blind flyer his own particular achievement, the art of riding the beam. And just as the beat of propellers herald man's adventure into the sky and the invisible signals of the radio beacon mark the conquest of fog, man's latest victory in his battle with the elements. That's our reading from Newswing, February 1934. Wow, how long... uh, way we have come to this day when it's all done uh, by magic, as we said earlier, all done by magic. You know, we do have some uh, listeners that uh, have joined us in our from the Eastern Files today, so I want to open up some microphones and, and um, chat with whoever's on the line. Let's see who we've got here. Um, 750, is that to you? Uh, who is that? Chuck? No, no sorry. Yeah, Chuck's here. Oh. Okay, Dorothy and Chuck, both. Okay, very good. Thank you. Very right, good story. Yeah, excellent. Very informative. Is, wasn't that uh, something? I tell you what, you can find some interesting reading way back in the day. You really yeah. can. Something that we didn't know about, so or heard about before, so that's a very good thing. Yeah, a a far piece from the uh, the one I read this week about the hypersonic uh, plane that they're building uh, for the future. (laughs) Tell us about it, Chuck. What do you mean a hypersonic? Uh, You mean going faster than what? Four or five times the speed of sound? Yes, it's five times the speed of sound. It's going to go right to the edge of space, uh, somewhere in about the 100,000 range, I think. Oh, and um, it could cross um, it could cross from uh, L.A. to Tokyo in less than two hours. Wow. Uh, go down to uh, Melbourne in less than four hours. Um, I mean, it's the phenomenal speed that you get out of it. But it's it's so far it's. Um, they think around 25, 2025, they'll be ready for it. Yeah. It's, it's, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. use regular fuel, as you know. They they have, uh, like, hydrogen peroxide type of yeah. fuel. Liquid fuel. And uh, oxygen. And uh, what they're going to do is they're going to have a, a turbine for low altitude, a ramjet for... Uh, a higher altitude, and then this uh, this liquid uh, oxygen, just like they have when they shoot the the um, the uh, guided missiles and stuff into space, like we when we go to the space yeah. station, they'll well, use know, that kind of fuel. You know, to compare what I just read and the way they operated airplanes back in 1934. It's remarkable how far we've come and how skilled pilots had to be in those days to stay alive and keep their passengers safe as opposed to in today's modern aircraft. It's a a programmer's job today, whereas before it was talent and skill that uh, the pilot had to have to be able to listen to interpret what he hears by moving the airplane to stay on course and also to, at the same time, monitor all of the engine instruments, the temperature gauges, the fuel, everything 
uh, that is presented in front of him, he had to do that manually and by feel. And I guess that's where we come up with the phrase flying by the seat of their pants. And they were flying by the seat. Not so today. Not so today, in my opinion. Well, I remember at, um, when I started out at Pan Am before I came to Eastern, and we actually got uh, fairly good at tuning the engines. They used to put a, um, a, it looked like a stick with two little knobs on the bottom of them, and they go up through the cowling to these two little hexagon uh, uh, things into their fuel-air mixture, and you would turn the little notches back and forth, and we, somebody in the cockpit would watch the gauges go up and down until you got to where you wanted the engine to be as far as tuning the engine. And we used to have one guy there, and he would put his earmuff up against the engine and tune it that way, and he was pretty good at it. <laughs> it was just like tuning a car. Well, like wetting your fingers, sticking it up in the air to find out the direction and velocity of the wind. <laughs> there you go. It's, uh, but, what, uh, what's remarkable is um, the time span that we're talking about. It. You know, we're not talking millenniums or, or all this about yeah, that's when right, you had uh, the yeah. first flight that went and the next flight that goes to the moon, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, and, and if you look at it from a scale, uh, I saw it one time. It's less than 100 it, years it's ago. It's like a hair on a scale. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, it, it's incredible. It's just a little bit less than 100 years because, uh, well, let's say a little bit more than 100 years, I guess, because it first started Kitty Hawk, 2000, I mean, 1904, I believe. Yeah, but I think we, we, we had aerospace on the boards before that. They just didn't fly at that time. They, we had people yeah. there who were, at, you know, in the bicycle shop, so to speak, um, designing, coming up with some kind of an airplane. Look, and yeah. what was it? Um, Leonardo da Vinci. He came up with the yeah. idea yeah, of an airplane. Yeah, that's true. Well, I want to ask you, you being so. in maintenance, I want to ask you, uh, do you recall the oscilloscope that the engineers used to use on the uh, four-engine reciprocating airplanes to uh, analyze the ignition of each spark plug in each cylinder. Two yeah, I remember. I didn't use it myself, but I believe that, that big. That was that yeah, big. You remember that, Don? Yeah, the Connie had it. Yeah, and uh, you sit there, tell which one was misfiring. <laughs> we come a long <laughs> way. We really have. Yeah, that was awesome. Now they got that a little, it's just if you want to bring it to modern day, they took that same idea and they made this little gizmo that you plug into your car. And instead of going to the mechanic, it tells you what's wrong with the spark plug. It'll tell you which spark plug's not working great, and you just change the spark plug. That's right. I mean, it's amazing. And that's similar to what you had in the airplanes. Yeah, do what, Don? If you can Stop. get in there to change it, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, get into the I engine, can't, yeah. I can't get in my my engine anymore. I know it. Yeah, no, I, I quit doing it myself. When, when they stopped putting they the air filters on top of carburetors, that's when I just threw in the towel. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. They did well, take the so air filter to... out. I haven't looked under the hood of a car. Of my, I just bought a brand new Camry, and uh, I swear I looked in there one time to see if it was there. The engine was there, but I didn't recognize anything, hardly, at all. Now the just oscilloscopes that you were talking about was was something that um, you had to really get the hang of it to use it. I never did, but uh, because I'd progressed on to some of the later models. Of yeah. uh, Boeing airplanes. Yeah, you had to but, look at the uh, pattern. They even gave you the engineers a book to see what the patterns were to reference that what they were seeing to a book as to what it should be. Remember that, right? Yeah, it, but, it's, uh, it's just phenomenal. Uh, yeah. What's going on? And now, of course, you 
you brought into play here with uh, your your background today of today's program of what we have today is uh, the GPS uh, took over what what the um, actually I guess it was the the, the Moran they had. Oh, the Moran! I was going to say that was an oscilloscope nightmare to me. I could never interpret what I read off the of Loran, Loran C. Yeah. And we, as a captain, you had to check out. And I remember I was checked out from New York to uh, San Juan, navigating by Loran. And, uh, of course, there was a special chart for it uh, to show. And you had to take positions uh, along the way. And I think on the way back from San Juan, no, it was to Boston, Boston to San Juan. And I got down to San Juan okay and had a layover. And coming back, I missed Boston, I don't know, by 200 miles, I guess. <laughs> But the guy let me go anyhow. What? I guess he figured Loran's not going to be in these airplanes much longer, so uh, he let me go. Well, I, I'll tell you what. I, I worked on, when I was at Pan Am, I worked on the 707, and they still had the little window in the ceiling. You know what it was for? Yeah, yeah, Celestial. Yeah. Right. They used, to, they used to take yeah. a sextant and shoot the stars. Yeah. Because I asked well, the you guys, 11 had a door up there where the you could stick your head out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, we've come a long yeah. way, and we've got a long way to go. And, and our grandchildren will be working on planes or flying planes or taking rides in planes that we yeah. uh, can only dream of. You know, it's um, yeah, it's just I, I think well, sooner or later you're going to have commercial airliners flying to the moon they're going to fly here they're going to fly there yep. how far yeah. they can fly out of out into the solar system i don't know because i think it, it takes nine months to get to um um let's see mars. i guess it would be yeah mars probably mars right there that's what yeah. they're planning yeah, on i think it is yeah yeah, yeah. well listen and jupiter's great. you know farther and of course I think Great discussion. Go, on a Saturday I think note, our little, I'm about out of time here. On a Saturday oh, note, I want okay. yeah, I want to talk about this just a little bit. Uh, on a Saturday note, uh, we were deeply saddened to learn yesterday of the passing of Captain Al Haynes. Now, yesterday being Sunday, uh, in Sat in Seattle on Sunday. Captain Haynes was a DC-10 captain in command of Flight 232 on July 19, 1989, when his aircraft experienced the complete loss of all its hydraulic controls. 112 of the 296 people on board died as a result of the crash, including Flight Attendant Rene Labou, who was working the flight but the actions of the flight and in-flight crews, air traffic control representatives, and local officials and first responders that day saved many lives. The United Airlines family bids farewell to one of their greatest and a legend of, in aviation, said one of the employees, 30 years since he helped save 184 lives, Captain Al wow. Haynes, name remains synonymous with skill and grace under pressure. His more than three decades of service, as well as his dedication as a member, ensures his legacy will live on in generations of aviators he taught and inspired. The United family was blessed to have had him on board on that fateful day and every day he served with, with United. And they extend Godspeed to Al. The surviving crew members of Flight 232 remain closely knit, marking milestone anniversaries and attending the premiere of an award-winning play about the accident and even vacationing together. The group talks frequently and met up to work uh, Captain Haynes' retirement flight in August of 1991. He made the impossible possible said Jan Brown, the retired flight attendant working in the 
lead position on Flight 232 the day of the crash. She described the moment opened the, the moment she opened the door to the flight by a deck. It was as palpable as the blast of heat from a furnace. How the enormity of the crisis hit her. Part of her brain froze, she said. Al didn't even turn around, just told me what I needed to know. He saved my life and so many lives on that plane. Bless his heart forever. Wow. And we recently marked the 30th anniversary of the crash with a pre-published Q&A with Captain Haynes about his experiences in the cockpit of that flight and the teamwork, training, and preparation that contributed to minimizing the loss of life. The, cap- to the captain's family is currently planning his memorial service. This was by Marie Gray on the Internet. And um, a wonderful tribute to Captain Al Haynes. I met him in uh, Sun and Fun one time, shook his hand, and as there was almost a line outside the building, that uh, he gave a talk about uh, that that day, and uh, he had his uh, first officer with him, and it was in the FAA building at Sun and Fun in Lakeland, Florida. Oh, that was about ten years ago, I guess, and um, wow. uh, it just it just was amazing to listen to his presentation. A very devout man. Um, uh, he 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 was really a gentleman. And truly a scholar and uh, a talented, uh, beyond what most pilots have today, flying aircraft. So, wish we had more Al Haynes in cockpits flying our skies. That's my we thought. We sure do. You know, Neil, they did make a movie about that. Yeah, that's what Neil said. He did yeah. mention that. Well... It uh, you know I think about the miracle on the Hudson and uh, Sully Sullenberger and um, you know what happened to him and how fast he had to think about what to do and uh, that uh, that to me was the uh, the hardest part of that whole scenario on the Hudson right right of course the, the landing right itself thing. but the the precise timing of what to do when something happened and. Uh, these men, like Al Hames and Sully, were truly trained stick and rudder in the stick and rudder days, my opinion, and they knew how to fly an airplane without the autopilot. And today's pilots don't seem to know how to do that. Yes, well, that's, that's the key, knowing how to fly, not just with manual, but being able to pick up the uh Automatic and shut it off when you need to do that so you don't get yeah. yourself and the passengers killed. Yeah. That's the rarity. That's the problem. Well, that's why, you know, this program from the Eastern Files, we like to bring up articles like uh, I read today about how it was to fly an airplane, the feel of an airplane, not rely on the automation that we now have that has uh, improved beyond the Sperry Auto Gyros that were in our Curtis Condors back in the 30s. But now uh, I thought the inertial reference system on the 757 that I flew was remarkable, but I'm sure the improvements are just uh, uh, (laughs) so precise. You used to tell, uh, the instructor used to tell us when we were checking out on the first uh, 757s that the Eastern got, first-class cockpit airplanes, that you can put the um, coordinates to your mailbox in front of your house and land this airplane. <laughs> and you could. It was that precise. precise. Neil Foam planes out front. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching the. But hey, I'm watching the hurricane hunter. Yeah, one other thing. Talk about flying. Most pilots that I knew that uh, checked out in the 757 and all the other aircraft at Eastern Airlines until we were no longer. 
instead of relying on the autopilots, we loved to hand fly those airplanes. We really did. We truly loved to fly, hand fly those airplanes. In other words, knocking off the autopilots and actually feeling the pressures on the yokes, which were in the, the modern airplanes are artificial pressures. What does flying at uh, nearly 500 miles an hour feel like on the ailerons and the rudder and the elevators? Uh, that's all artificial when the pilot moves the control yokes. When the airplane slows down, there's a little bit more movement to the control yokes because of the speed of the airplane. So, But in the old days, it was the stick and rudder, and you felt the wind over your ailerons, elevators, and rudders. You truly felt, you know, the environment. A lot of people don't know this, but the big jumbo jets have two rudders. They have an upper yeah. rudder and a lower rudder, which is a low speed and high speed. Yeah. Because if and we, the lower rudder ever, you ever operated at high speed, the plane would just flip the tail around because the the amount of uh, of area there is so large that it switches to the upper, which is a smaller rudder. Yeah. Your deflection well, we had yaw dampers, too, on the rudders. So <laughs> yes, they did. To prevent the yaw on the 727, they did. And uh, But uh, we've come a long way from the Curtis Condors and the Wright Flyer. We've come a long, long way. But... Um, uh, what do you think about the hurricane? So let's just uh, talk a little bit about uh, the environment here. <laughs> Talking about the environment, uh, Emery's going to show me where, yeah, he's showing me a picture on his smartphone about where it's headed and still forecasting. I'm looking at it now. What's your thoughts? Where, Chuck, and uh, you're in the villages, uh, and if that thing comes across where they think it might, uh, how, what do you think? We won't get the eye, but we're going to get a lot of rain and a lot of wind. The eye is going to be a little bit east of us. It's actually going to go between um, Orlando and Melbourne, if you can come across the yeah. Uh, yeah. the state yeah. and probably exit somewhere up. You know, it'll turn up somewhere like in the Van Halen. North or of something. St. Pete. That's yeah. just one of the theories, though. There's a whole mess of these theories that they got. But right now, it looks like... What's your um, plans? You plan to stay? Oh, yeah. I've been... <laughs> this well, is Dorothy, go. you guys going to stay? Yep. You can't go up and you can't go down because we're all going to get it. We're, according to what they and, just said, is everybody is impacted. And uh, it uh, may be a Category 3 in this area, so we don't know yet. Don said he probably wouldn't know until maybe Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. It's got to be the weekend before we can decide what's going on up here. Uh, Have you been well, to this will be my supermarket? Hurricane. Have you been to your public supermarket? We went yesterday, and by golly, they were almost cleaned out of everything. Yeah, it's I mean, the wild. shelves of bread and milk and eggs, and they were out of everything. I, I went this morning, and there was no water left. Yeah. yeah, of course. Well, I did we've a lot already, of that. We sat at that. That's right, Chuck. Did, we already did the same thing. I did that two weeks yeah. ago. You, you don't right. wait till the last minute because don't forget, <laughs> Don and I have lived in South Florida the last uh, 22 years, and we know yeah. what it's like. We've been yeah. there. We've done that. We don't need anybody to tell us what we need to do because we know what we're going to do. And well, what we have to do is Dorothy, I'm looking at my first power generator today. Right, right. <laughs> and well, guess what? That's really it's going, to be, it's going to be delivered three days after the hurricane. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, I keep one at the house upon, all the time. Yeah, it depends upon when it gets up here, though. You, you don't yeah. really know yet. You might just beat it. Okay. Uh, so, you know, yeah. we don't know. Uh, yeah. As long as yeah. you've got it ordered, that's the main thing. No one's yeah. talking about when this thing does cross the uh, Florida Peninsula, what it's going to do in the Panhandle or in New Orleans. Charleston. 
Charleston. That's what they're showing Charleston? here. Yeah, right? it's going to go. It's going to make a curve, and it's going to go out to sea and go mm-hmm. into the, the the Gulf there. But uh, there's mm-hmm. um, the Gulf Stream, the Gulf, uh, the the currents in the Gulf Stream out there are yeah. going to move it. Plus, the jet stream has come way down. Normally, I don't know what you're watching. I haven't seen that at all. <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. Hey, Weather Channel. <laughs> no way. I've been watching it because it looks like it's going up to Neil, and so it's a wide spread. Does it really? Spread. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's a after it goes across the straight the state, yeah, it's coming. Well, back. we don't we don't know that it's really going to go across. It's going to come in. It looks like it's going in and going out. From what I've seen, going up, going straight was, up the. Yeah, that was a two o'clock news, uh, three wow. o'clock news. I haven't seen the, any. The eye will probably you know, the eye of the storm will probably stay on the coast, but it's such a big storm, a wide storm. It's yeah, going to be the whole state of Florida. You can't tell too soon because they're talking about once it gets over the warm water, uh, that yeah. thing will change. And what was a, a smaller cone back then is going to be wider. They're talking about some hail here or there. So we we don't know really yet what it's going to be. You can't really say, and yeah. we can't say yeah. where, it's, where it's going to hit, hit here because they said all of the state is going to be impacted. So yeah. it's a well, wait-and-see type game right now. Well, batting down it's the hatches. It's moving pretty folks. good, though, at 13 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, so I we'll hope everyone comes weekend. out on the other side without Close any damages. Slow down. No. All right, then. Thanks so much. Yeah. It's been a great story, Neil. We really yeah, it was a good story. It. I like that. It was that. a lot of fun. It really was a lot of fun. Right, and, and I'm uh, glad that uh, you're doing well with your uh, generator yeah. there. I feel Everything a little is bit better fine. about I've that. I've got communications back after five days, almost six days, I guess. Well, thank you so much for listening to From the Eastern Files, and next week we hope to present Old Time Radio. You know, keeping our Eastern family informed is of the greatest importance to the radio show, and Join us every Thursday and every other Thursday when we broadcast from the Eastern Files and then the alternating Thursday, of course, Old Time Radio, which Don Gagnon, that you just heard, uh, will be presenting that as the host. We'll be doing, again, Johnny Mathis. We didn't finish that because we were stuck with technical difficulties. Do what, Dorothy? I I thought it was Dean Martin again. I'm sorry, Dean Martin. It is Dean right, Martin. Right, exactly. Yeah. I would like to do that again if it's okay with you, <laughs> Mr. Hope. Johnny. All right. Thank you for joining us today for our broadcast from the Eastern Files, which we bring to you every other Thursday. And then, of course, Monday nights. Join us like the whole world. Fifty countries around the world listen in to EAL, Eastern Airlines Radio Show. It's a talk show. And we will be bringing you, Dorothy, what will we be bringing to our listeners? Oh, we have uh, next week, we have a a memorial of the September 11th and Captain Nathan Horde. And following that is going to be the the Eastern history as Eastern comes back again. Uh, We'll follow that with our annual EAL Radio Show Hall of Fame. And then Scam Senior's Face today, which are many. Uh, We have quite a few on our list, so please, folks, do join us every single Monday and every Thursday. We're here for you. Dorothy, thank you so much. Don't forget, you can listen in at area code 213-816-1611. That's 213-816-1611, 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. When we go live with Eastern Airlines Radio. Right. Do you have a story or a memory you would like to? If you have a memory, a story you want to share with uh, our listeners uh, and the Eastern family, we would certainly like to hear from you. Uh, Just uh, give us an email. It's easy. Go online to EALRadioShow.com, and there you'll see a way to... 
email us. Uh, just host at EAL Radio, and you can tell us uh, that you want to present a uh, show, uh, usually on Thursday from the Eastern Files, about a half hour, 45 minutes, and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about during this time. We want to talk about Eastern Airlines. That's mainly why we're here. Been here for almost nine years coming up here in about three months. So, uh, great having you with us. Thanks for listening. And we always sign off by saying goodbye, Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. Goodbye, Eastern We love you, Eastern. See you guys later. Be be safe this weekend, guys. Yeah, good show, Neil. Great show. Bye-bye. Nice show. Thank you so much.